I've heard you say kind of a couple of things on the in the discussion today. So I heard you say, uh, you know, before you build, kill. Uh, I heard you say, data really is kind of the underlying source for the decisions uh, you make as a company. Uh, one thing that really stuck with me uh, was this idea that sometimes you just have to appreciate that some things are part of the process, uh, and then this whole idea of using content to drive your brand. I've learned a lot from today's discussion. We've known each other socially, so it's nice to have a stimulating, uh, intellectually stimulating conversation. So I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Thank you. And I think I mentioned that at the beginning, this doesn't happen enough in our space. Yeah. Welcome to another episode of Talks with T. Um, uh, very lucky today to have Philip Bahoshi, who is the co-founder and CEO of Magnet, uh, with us today. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Excited. How would you uh, describe Magnet for someone who is living under a rock in the tech world and has never heard of it? I think it's, it's interesting because it's changed a lot from what it was and what it is now. We now uh, consider ourselves to be the largest verified venture capital data platform um, that does research and analytics. Uh, very different to what people perceived us to be, which was a media or newsletter. We now have a pure SaaS platform that helps decision makers identify startups, benchmark deal terms, market size, the state of the venture capital ecosystem. Um, and we now cover Africa, the Middle East, Pakistan, Turkey, and we're expanding into Southeast Asia. So ultimately the emerging market space that we want to focus on. So it's a venture capital data platform. Nice. I'm sure uh, it took some time to get the clarity around where you were going and what your North Star was. Talk to me a little bit about kind of the journey to get there. Yeah, I mean, it's been about seven years of kind of meandering, pivoting. I think that I, I did a business presentation for the team and I think that in, in seven years I pivoted probably about five, six times that people may not have realized. Starting off the origins was to connect founders and entrepreneurs and people still think that we are trying to connect the two together. Underlying all of that was data is the essence of any ecosystem. And the truth of the matter is that we live in an environment where there is no data or a lack of credible, reliable, consistent data in the venture capital or even in the private company space. At the beginning, we tried everything. There was a job board, there was a messaging board, there was a Tinder-like interface that connected the two people together. Yeah. What created some credibility and ultimately what kickstarted us is when we started doing the research. When we started putting out content that benchmarked MENA, nobody was able to quantify it. People talked about it. Mm -hmm. I would hear other protagonists talking on stage and throwing out numbers. And I was like, those aren't necessarily right or wrong. Or what are they? Where did you, what's the, the source of this? Because international players weren't focused on this space. And so what we began to hone into is that's the sweet spot. Data, research, analytics. And in the last couple of years, we realized even more that it's not necessarily the retail proposition, it's who can pay for this. And mm. it's governments, corporates, consultants, um, venture capitalists, big tech companies, and really the whole interface and everything that we've been 
kind of focused on is how can we better educate, support the decision makers of those organizations? And that was a lot of the journey. Yeah, yeah, and I guess um, it's pivoting. I can relate to it because if I think about Bezat, we've we're on our third pivot. I keep saying it's probably the last one, but I'm not sure if you that's the know. case. The idea of pivoting comes with mixed reviews externally in terms of how long do you stay attached to an idea? When do you make the decision that this idea isn't working and throw in the towel to move in a different direction? I'd love to hear about some pivots, memorable pivots that come to mind and the inner dialogue you had to have, the dialogue you had with the team and in retrospect kind of analyzing so I think you have to be humble, you have to be nimble, you have to accept when things are working and you have to accept when they're not working. I was fortunate, I did the 500 startups growth program and uh, that was a, a six week program. And one of the things that they taught us in that program is before you build, you kill. And when they asked or we asked, how do you choose? They say the numbers don't lie. So for instance, we had got to a point where we were trying to do a LinkedIn for startups. That was one of the, that was the second pivot was to, to create this community-based approach where people could interact. You had a job board, you had a perks board, i.e. you could go and get AWS credit, get a Bayside mm, credit, etc. You had the directories, you had a messaging service, you could apply to investors using your profile. And one of the gentlemen on the program, the mentor said, by the end of the day, I want one of the features to be killed. And I want you to come and tell us what that is. And we sat there saying, no, but we can't kill it. This is what they want. This is what they want. And he says, go to Google Analytics, look back six to 12 months. What site traffic do you get? What value does it create? What's the ROI for the business? And then take a decision. And so we looked at how many startups applied to investors, how many startups applied for jobs or posted jobs, and this perks, which huge amount of time going out, getting them, negotiating them, putting them, how many people applied to these freebies on the platform. And the truth of the matter is you go back six months and although you think that it's a nice to have, there was about 10% of any of the traffic to the perks compared to 50% or 40% of the jobs and then the rest all going to the application for investors. And so in the end, while we thought that startups want help and they want something that's free, the numbers proved waste of time. Kill it. That is time that the guy who's going and negotiating these things doesn't have to do anymore. That is time that the tech team needs to develop and continue to upload and change. Now we can think of a new feature. And to be fair, COVID really accelerated that. I remember in the midst of COVID when we we're all sitting at home, uh, my CTO, um, Dana, literally said, we got to be efficient here. And it, what's the ROI on anything on the platform? Before we build any new feature right now, what is it that we need to kill? Because we're all about being efficient in what it is that we're doing. And we've lived by that motto. So while pivoting is the idea that you're changing, the way that you go about doing it is to try and be 
one, experimental, try things, do things differently, etc. But also to look at the numbers and in the end, speak to your customers because mm. the customers don't need something, then why have it? Kill it. Um, and that's one of those learning lessons that we began to kind of pick up on. It's hard when you're emotionally attached to something to say, I'm going to let go of it. And so how do you detach the emotion from the the decision that seems more logical? It's a great question. I, maybe I'm not the best person because I try to be quite rational as okay. a data-driven business. Yeah. I am not so emotionally attached. I mean, you could probably argue that and, and I don't realize what I am emotionally yeah. attached to and what I'm not emotionally attached to. But I have not in the, the seven, eight years of doing this been too emotionally attached to a feature should we say, if the numbers just tell you it's not working, it's not working. We built a whole online subscription model thinking, right, VCs want to see growth. We need to show that it's online. The numbers didn't justify it. We've now gone and moved completely offline and it's mm. completely SaaS enterprise. And I don't, it didn't bother me. Yeah. But to answer your question, numbers, mm. data, and as a data business, I really appreciate that is the core of all decision-making. If mm. you do it based on emotions, you will make irrational and wrong decisions. Mm -hmm. If you do it based on facts, figures, and I say data, but it can be quantified data or it can be subjective. You can interview, you can run surveys, you can send surveys to your clients, you can send surveys to prospective clients, you can ask your BD team feedback that your customers are saying when, when, when you're speaking to them. Um, we now launched valuations on the platform. I can tell you that the number one feature that every single person wanted was valuations on the platform, mm. right? If, if, if 100 people are telling you that you want valuations on the platform, then you should probably try to look and, and do it. If one person says that he wants an API for the social metrics of the company because it really helps them, are there 10 others that want it? Yes, no. Um, so ultimately, it comes down to data to mm. take out the emotions of any decision making. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a perception that if I'm trying to build a tech business, uh, I need to go out and raise a boatload of cash. Uh, I know that historically, and even today, you run a pretty lean operation. So talk me through your mindset around fundraising, how you think about running Magnet. Yeah, it's, it's, um, we've only ever done one raise uh, back in 2018. Um, there are benefits and consequences of being able to do that. Understanding the industry is that hyper growth um, is the venture capital mindset. So I always say that venture capital is not charity. If they're investing, they're expecting exponential returns. And for exponential returns, you need exponential growth. But there's certain business types that are long tail. Data as a business is a much more long tail business, um, especially when you're going into the enterprise and SaaS space. So we've been very efficient in the way that we've been operating and everything that I just alluded to in terms of being ROI focused, data focused, etc., is key. And almost in the last two, three years, there was a lot of criticism for you're not growing fast enough, you're not being aggressive enough, etc. And then when things flip, then everyone's like, oh, wow, it's, it's great to be efficient. And actually yeah. you're in a good position and, and you've learned the hard way. So it's circumstantial. Um, I do appreciate that if you are taking VC 
money, then then the name of the game is exponential growth, which is why we've only ever done it once. And then the investors seem to be somewhat satisfied with like, this guy knows what he's doing, so so we'll leave it. But the consequences of that is that you can't be hiring aggressively, continuously. We've had to become very efficient with who we hire, how we hire. The team is everything. I was told mm. recently, or I, I know that it, it's a people business. You're ultimately mm. only as good as the team that you have. And I really adore and, and appreciate all of the team that we have. Mm. But in the end, the team is 80% of your costs. Because yeah. as tech businesses, okay, it's office rent, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a little bit of kind of marketing, there's a little bit of here and there, but 80% of your costs are effectively just people. Mm. Um, and that's what you need to take care and nurture. And so when you can't be going out there and hiring 10 people for every role, which is not completely uncommon in a tech company, when you raise yeah. X million, the first thing that you're going to go and do is just hire like crazy. Mm. Um, we took a slightly different approach and it was a bit more conservative that we need to continue um, to kind of identify the people that will take us to kind of continued growth moving forwards. Yeah. And to a certain extent, the flavor of 2018 through 2022 was is now out of fashion, which is burn cash. And so what have you learned? I mean, tell me some stories around when you've had to make tough decisions to uh, run the business in a way that is capital efficient. Uh, so I'd love to hear kind of stories around that. Uh, any that you're willing to share, preferably ones that you're not willing to share. <laughs> and, and then we can kind of delve into what other entrepreneurs can learn from that experience. Look, I think we've always been relatively cost efficient from an operational perspective. Mm -hmm. So we've never had the flashy office and we've never had the big space. We've never really had too much of the swag and, and, and those type of things. So um, when we were based out of the DMCC and the JLT, it was meager. And then we went into COVID for about 18 months yeah. of that. So, so we were very cost efficient from the OPEX kind of perspective. Um, we now recently moved to the DIFC and it's been great being part of the DIFC kind of infrastructure, but that has been uh, an increase in cost. And that's something that's also been challenging moving forwards, um, given the environment that we're currently in. Um, marketing. This is something that people don't realize. We've not really spent anything on marketing as a company. Um, we were just touching on it yeah. before. One of the benefits of being a data company is that the content drives the awareness. What we have tried to do is work out what's the messaging, what's the call to action, what's the ROI, what's the metric of success, how can you drive more leads, what do you do to build your brand. But the reality is, since 2018, since we've uh, fundraised, I can tell you that it, it's less than 1% of any of the costs have been towards marketing as organic spending or advertising. Um, and that's been something that's been very efficient for us. Um, could we potentially grow more? Maybe. The challenge was when we were an online subscription business, like any checkout process, the idea was get them to the website, buy a report, buy a subscription, payment gateway, checkout. Now that we're an enterprise business, it's not. So can you spend X amount on Google ads or, or LinkedIn to get a lead? Probably not. And as a B2B business, you should probably be out there networking, events, um, content creation, driving awareness through insights and analysis. And so that's been very 
cost effective, albeit a lot harder than if you were just churning out um, marketing spend. Yeah. Um, so those are two kind of things that we've been very kind of efficient in, in the way that we've been operating the business. Nice. It's not a natural career path uh, to go into consulting slash investment banking, go do your MBA. I think you went to INSEAD. Yeah. That's where we have some common friends. Yeah. Uh, and then decide after your MBA that I'm going to go start a startup. You know, I spent all this money doing the MBA. Typically, I'm going to go into a consulting gig or... Yeah. Where was your head at when you decided to, to jump into this? So I've always been somewhat entrepreneurially minded that I wanted to do something for myself. Why? Um, I guess because I wanted to prove that I could. Okay. Um, I've had the luxury of being able to make those decisions uh, without necessarily some of the consequences. And I always wanted to give it a go. Um, having left the MBA, the truth is I, I joined the family business for a year um, and then decided to, to do something on my own. And I wanted to prove that I could. So whether that's stubbornness and with time you begin to realize was that the right reason or not, but I wanted to prove that I could actually be successful in my own right without... Um, it being a corporate or family or, or whatever it is. You know, it's interesting because it's actually quite common and quite natural, I think, more and more uh, than I realized before starting the show that a lot of people want to start something to prove they could yeah. to their parents, to society, to themselves, and then it naturally evolves into a bigger purpose. So Va I think Validation, yeah, a lot yeah. of... I always say that founders tend to be narcissists or you yeah. need to be somewhat crazy. I mean, the famous quotes of people need to be, they have to have ridiculous self-belief and that yeah. they have to almost be crazy enough to want to try. And, and at some point that validation continues to kick mm. in. And when mm. you talk about the emotions that you mentioned earlier, mm. the hardest decision-making is, is something working or is something not working mm. and, and when to call it quits and when to continue. Um, but ultimately at its core, I was always inclined on the business side of the operating, mm. the, 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 the business development and the, the sales side of things. And at INSEAD, all the electives that I chose were entrepreneurial. And it already gave me the platform and the understanding of what it was as kind of an industry. Uh, I don't know that what I'm doing now is what I had set out to do. I originally wanted to, and I recently listened to the podcast on Vivino. Mm. The, the, the first idea that I had was to try and build out a, a wine directory of uh, information. And yeah. now that you hear it's a billion, multi-billion dollar yeah. business, it's, it's fascinating to understand. But the other one that I, I coming from a private banking kind of background as chief of staff for the CEO of Barclays Middle East, I wanted to create that online portfolio management because mm. I could see the inefficiencies in the private banking world. Mm. Um, but back in 2014, 15, the, the, the entrepreneurial ecosystem, the structure, the, the cost of starting a company um, was so high and challenging that like, how do you go and build an online portfolio management business or a wine app when like you don't know the industry you don't know the space you don't have the engineers everything is outsourced all of those challenges of kind of I, I, i'm still a sole founder um although i have a great cto and i'm building a great team um but at the time it, it, you're outsourcing everything and um so for me it was a drive it was a passion it was a, a real belief that i wanted to try and do something on my own and that's what instigated it and kind of kick-started the whole exercise mm. So you, you probably have the statistics on this. What 
percentage of MENA startups are sole founders versus? We're going to hopefully bring out a report on yeah. this specifically. Yeah. Um, on the last count, I think it was close to 30% of uh, founders. Actually, that's the report that we did in 2017. Okay. So we want to benchmark against that now. Got it. Um, we're actually aggregating the data on this. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's close to 30%. Whereas in the States, about 30 to 40% are two founders or three founders. Mm. And we talked about the All In podcast. Mm. Like you hear these guys, the companies that are likely to be most successful are the ones that have two, three founders that can leverage each other, um, be a support for each other in the good times and the bad times. Um, and I think that that is something that slowly from a mindset perspective is beginning to change. Mm. I think the Kareem story is is a great example of really the role models of two founders, then in the recent documentary that they released on their 10 year anniversary, how they brought the third co-founder from Saudi and they made a strict point of saying that we were all on equal terms and we believed in each other. And while we started as two, we embraced the three mm. and we wanted to continue to grow accordingly. And it takes that level of kind of understanding. And the other thing is that serial entrepreneurs make for the best entrepreneurs. I think mm. every one of the godfathers of entrepreneurship here, whether it's Fadi Randor or um, others that state, um, I know that for instance, uh, Ronaldo and Eli Habib from Agami, Ronaldo mm. from uh, uh, Souk, love hiring founders that have either been successful or unsuccessful in mm. their companies because mm. they understand what it takes to potentially scale and grow yeah. um, those companies. So it's not just the single founder, two founder, three founders, like do you actually have experience in this space? And mm. you're more likely to be successful in your second or third venture than mm. it is on the first one. But don't discount the experience that you had in that first venture going yeah. into the others. Yeah. And so what's your, now in retrospect, hindsight's 2020, what are your views on being a sole founder versus having two or three co-founders yeah I, I don't think that if i would do it all over again it's one of those things that i i now not to say that i didn't try and find co-founders during the first one or two years of building the company mm. but you don't find co-founders i mean yeah it's it's, it's difficult it's, it's a really weird it, job application process looking for a co-founder please uh apply here it's always serendipitous it's either friendship education work um and the best co-founders are complementary so yeah. like the worst thing that you do is you get people with the same skill sets starting the company like you get somebody who's technologically minded somebody who's marketing minded somebody who's sales minded that's like the perfect yeah. complement of three mm. How do you go about finding the, the, there's no job applications, like you said, or, no. or, or, or CVs for that. Not only that, the challenge of the region that we're operating in, mm. at least going back seven years ago, was mm. that you can only be living here, or the circumstances tend to be, if you have a visa, which means you are employed. The opportunity cost of giving up that employment to start or encourage someone to join your company is huge. Yeah. So you have to be super passionate about the idea the business um, to take that leap of faith mm. whereas if you're in the UK or in the US it's not a visa issue it's an operational issue you sit at home you don't need the the license and the the working space and the visa to operate like all of those things almost make it very difficult mm. for the structure of just 
taking a leap of faith, quitting your job for six months and kind of giving it a go. And that's why finding those co-founders either have to come through work or, or friendship or university or, um, or or serendipitously meeting at conferences and events. Mm. Now, now more than ever before, many of those structures are beginning to exist. Yeah. But yeah, not easy. And yeah. I wouldn't have done it the same way yeah. if I could do it again. Yeah. Why not? Look, I mean, there's definitely benefits. Decision making is very efficient. Yeah. You're the ultimate decision maker yeah. it's uh, you while you can be democratic and listen and 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 i'm always one for feedback and understanding what other people have and i value everyone's opinion in the end the decision is yours mm. um so that makes things quite efficient but the downside of it is that you are literally on call non-stop mm. and as uh, my father would say the buck stops yeah. at you mm. right other people can move on other people um, can find other opportunities when things get too stressful. Um, but in the end, you're the person that there's no like, you can't take that one, two month, three month holiday break or um, take time out uh, in that kind of way. And, and the responsibility lies at you all the time, nonstop, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and that's one of the challenges. And I, I again, I can't speak to, I mean, you're three founders, yeah, so it's yeah, interesting to get your yeah, perspective yeah. from what it is the other way around. And, and and you always hear that the sole founder wishes that they had co-founders and then co-founders sometimes say, yeah. oh, it would be so much easier if you're a sole founder. Yeah, I mean, I'm very fortunate to get to work uh, with my brother uh, as one of the co-founders. And then Brian is like a brother because we've been friends since high school. So actually him and Talal are our best friends from high school. Um, that doesn't create challenges? Yeah, I mean, it has its own challenges, but I think kind of looking, reflecting back on it, whether it's family or whether it's maybe a co-founder who's not family, I think the only way the co-foundership sustains time is if all parties are willing to put their ego at the door uh, and willing to develop and grow. So if I think about where we were as a unit of three, uh, six, seven years ago, uh, a lot of debate centered around who's right and wrong, uh, a lot of stubbornness, uh, and if I think about where we are today, it's really debate to find the truly the best answer, right? And that may be an amalgamation of this person's initial thought, that person's thought, and this the third person's thought. And actually it's kind of one plus one plus one equals five instead of three. Um, and so I think it works because everyone is willing to admit when they're wrong, which involves putting your ego at the door and then willing to develop and learn and improve on a personal level, right? Uh, uh, all of us have done some level of therapy, coaching, whatever you want to call it, to improve on a personal level in order to bring that better person. I can't imagine what it's like being a sole, uh, solo founder because the flip side of it is, I think once, you, given that we've established that relationship as co-founders where it's, more productive than destructive when we interact with each other, then there's this inherent trust, yeah. right? And so when a critical hire leaves, for example, it's not like, oh shit, I'm on my own. What am I gonna do next? Uh, and you know that you have other people that you can lean in on. Um, so so kudos to you. I mean, I'm, uh, I can also imagine that it 
develops a lot of mental toughness to be a, a solo yeah. founder. I mean, to be fair, I mean, I have to give a lot of credit to Dana, who has joined me for yeah. now close to five years in this Amazing. journey, and, and to an extent has been my rock and and, yeah. and bouncing board from that perspective. Yeah. So I can't say that it's been completely alone in that journey. But fair. like you said, yeah. that that relationship develops in trust. Yeah. But yes, you mm. begin to grow very thick skin. Yeah. Um, I mean, to to kind of jump on your points, yeah. maturity is also very important. Mm. I think it's, uh, you talked about the statistic of sole founders. Mm. I think the other one that we looked at was what was the average age of founding a company of the most well-funded startups in the region. And interestingly, the average is around 33. Mm. Um, that doesn't mean that these guys didn't maybe start a company beforehand, but that whole idea that you're a 21 year old tech guy straight out of university mm. is not necessarily true. Mm. Some of the most successful founders um, or businessmen or CEOs mm. are in their 40s and 50s yeah. um, of companies that are, that are being created. And it speaks to what you just said, yeah. that rationality, that maturity and decision-making mm. process, that ability to kind of know what's right and wrong and which fight to have because mm. some fights are just ego or, yeah. or stubbornness mm. and others having a longer term perspective than a decision to get you through the week is mm. very important in that decision making process yes you do develop very thick skin I did, you, did you always have thick skin or is it something you feel like i i think i've always been stubborn okay um, I'm comfortable saying that. And yeah. that stubbornness can manifest in being kind of one-tracked. Yeah. Um, it can also lead, I, I don't want to say to a lack of empathy, but that sometimes the emotional side is kind of blocked out with regards to just taking decisions. Um, and that's something that I've definitely had to kind of work on the importance of empathy and, and the consequences of decision-making and what's right, what's wrong, and how to kind of develop that as a skill set. Um, but yes, you definitely develop thick skin. And I think actually where the positive of that is that not every decision is going to be right. There are consequences to that that may be, I mean, to a certain extent, every time we put out data and research, for instance, that whole trolling concept, there's always someone yeah. who's going to be upset. There's yeah. always someone who's going to criticize. There's always some, and there was a time where I would react to every comment or concern or question or you're wrong or you got this wrong and, and, it, and it became very consuming. Whereas now we've come to just appreciate it's part of the process. In, in an environment where there is a lack of data and information, you're not going to claim to get things right 100% all the time. You just accept that, thank you. Thank you for letting us know. That's very useful. If you would like to share the correct information, if you would like to tell us what's wrong, we can amend it, we can change it, we can update it. That's the beauty of the platform. Um, and kind of develop it from that perspective. So the thick yeah. skin has even come in ways that You've just had to kind of evolve and, and appreciate that criticism from clients for things that don't work. Mm. Not everything's going to be perfect all the time. Thank mm. you very much for the feedback. We'll work on it. We'll get back to you when it's fixed. Happy client. And so, so taking what would have been frustration or anger or upset or sadness of opinions that people have and converting that into, right, how can I now create a solution to the problem that's been presented is almost another way of manifesting thick skin. Yeah. 
to a certain extent, I think we were chatting about this before before we started recording. To a certain extent, a business to grow has to continue to. I don't want to say reinvent itself, but find that next wave of of growth. How how have you tried to navigate that and and find that? So interestingly, I think that the journey of Magnet has also been part of the journey and the growth of the ecosystem itself. Okay. So um, when we started, I'm not going to mention now names, but there are stories of people saying, "Why waste your time? Yeah, we don't need you." Mm. Nobody needs this data. Mm. We all know who the good startups are. Yeah. I can pick up the phone and speak to a VC and they'll tell me what's good, what's bad. Yeah. Our biggest clients are corporates, governments, and the people that don't have the access to the phone to the investors. Mm. So if I built a business to try and support the people that could pick up the phone, then they're right. Yeah. We don't have a business that supports that. Yeah. We support the people. It's, it's that Simon Sinek or the, not, not the known knowns or known unknowns, etc. It's the people that don't know yeah. that we're, we're trying to support. Mm. With time, the people that do know and pick up the phone are now looking at deals in Africa, Pakistan, Turkey. As per the report we published last week, $7 billion across all of those geographies. Mm more than 750 investment deals, mm. which means that those are the deals that received investment, which means yeah. there's a multiple of them looking to raise funds. No amount of interns is more efficient than a company that's sole focus is to aggregate, put the information, get the contact details, get the data on the platform. So for the cost of a junior associate or an analyst, you get more information, accurate, Etc. So the mindset has changed. Has changed yeah. So to your point is at the beginning, everyone says, oh, we don't need this. And to be fair, many VC ecosystems love opaque environments because mm. it gives a competitive advantage fair. to the VC. So you can understand why if you took that criticism, you'd be like, oh, maybe they're right. Um, I remember, again, one VC several years ago when Magnet just launched and it was the Tinder interface. Yeah. The idea was to send one minute videos of all the pictures of the founders. And I was pulled aside and said, you can't do that. I said, why? He said, well, now you're gonna kill the competitive advantage of us knowing who's who. Like, so it's better if you just keep it data driven and stuff. Now we didn't end up doing it, but, the, but it, it, it hit me that like, okay, is it that they're not interested or is it disruptive? Yeah. Now, I can't say it's been completely disruptive, but what I can say is that the accuracy of the data and the, the ability to put out information in a credible way is core of what it is that we're doing. So one of the, uh, one of the things that's always kind of struck me uh, as pretty impressive about you as a founder and then as a business is your ability to become a brand. Like, so when I think about top of mind for data analytics, startups, Magnet, right? And then the flip side of it is you said, you haven't really spent any money on marketing. So if you kind of look back on it and you have advice for founders or for anybody who's looking to become top of mind from a brand perspective without spending money on marketing. 
I mentioned that um, before we started that I think it's obviously as a data business, I appreciate the importance of data. And I, I repeat the values of what we have, credible data, accurate data. And one of the things that was very, I mean, so I came from that consulting background mm. and used to do presentations for the CEO of Barclays. And everything <laughs> was about clean representation of yeah. information. In the venture capital space, it's not uncommon to see 150 page decks of reams of information. And one of the things that we were, when I started was very dear to was actually, we've moved back into the presentation style, but was infographics, just very simple, dumbed down, easy to digest visualization of content that could get picked up by the media. Mm. And I believe that any startup in the field and industry that they're in are able to do that and become a thought leader in that space. Mm. Talk about yourself. People still don't know necessarily the best insurance provider. Mm. They don't know what the best premiums are. They don't know what the risks are. Yeah. How do you make that easily consumable, easily digestible and understanding? Yeah. I remember, and to be fair, I remember, I don't know if you remember the state of payments mm. when back in the day, um, the guys at oh, Payfort yeah. brought out the state of payments. Yeah. That was genius. I mean, everyone was reading this mm. report on the state of e-commerce and payment gateways. Payment gateways, I mean, you can't get more yeah. dull yeah, than yeah, payment yeah. gateways. Yeah. And yet they brought out this landmark report on the state of payments. What was the percentages? How many people were consuming it? Or how, what were the volumes? What was the pricing models? People love data and whatever your startup is in, rather than the focus, it, it's funny, people always say, oh, uh, Magnet press releases, I wouldn't be surprised if we kill funding announcements on Magnet very mm. soon, mm. Um, because it's a distraction for what our business model is now. Yeah. But the vanity side of it is huge. Mm. The reality is if you just put out thought leadership, be a thought leader about an industry. We just brought out a report this week, the 2023 mm. Venture Capital Report, right? It goes out in the media, people like to share it, etc. Every industry could be putting out a thought piece in the first weeks of January on the state of food, on the state of education, on the state of healthcare, on the state of insurance, on the state of uh, buy now, pay later. The trick is how do you make it interesting and mm. how do you make it insightful? And I guess that's what in seven years when you talk about brand, is that how do you make it interesting? And yeah. now the benefit that I have is I also speak to founders. I mm. speak to governments. I speak to investors. I consume a huge amount of information about the venture capital space. So it's subjective, but use the data to make the objectivity relevant. Mm. That's the trick in being able to make insight from the industry and the space. And what have you kind of learned along the way in terms of, so what I'm hearing you say is use the content data, whatever you have to build your brand. And so what are some mistakes you made along the way around using that? What has been effective? What has been ineffective? That's a good question. Um, I can't imagine every report's kind of blockbuster no, and kind no. of meets your so expectations. So the goal is to become the authority. Okay. And when you become the authority, it's to maintain the authority. Mm. Now, you can't be 100% accurate, but you need to make sure that you are 
as accurate as you can be. So I tell you one thing that has worked in our favor mm. and that we stick by is that we have a very, very clear methodology by what's included in our report, what's excluded in our report and how that benchmarks to international reports. Because there are plenty of entities and organizations putting out reports on venture capital. Everyone has a different number. Everyone has a different perspective. What we do is make sure that it's consistent and, and um, mm. uh, with a clear methodology. What didn't work, I look at when we try to enter one or two markets without the full data set, we went out and put out information that was only the 50% of the data set and people criticized it for being inaccurate. So there is a chicken and egg mm. argument of do you enter a market before you have the data so that you can build visibility and get the data or do you go when you're ready? And I think that there's a fine line between the two of them. So I think when we entered Pakistan and we, we started putting reporting on Turkey, we, we, we went in with an incomplete data set in the hope mm. that we get more data. And that kind of tarnished part of that reputation because everyone criticized it for being inaccurate. inaccurate yeah. Now the counter argument is because it was inaccurate, everyone gave us the information, but mm. you only get so many chances to do that market entry. Mm. Mm. Um, so that was an example of where it didn't necessarily um, work in our favor. What does work in our favor is that vanity is very important. Mm. And I always um, say that, look, if it's not right, give us the data and we'll make it correct. So from a VC perspective, there was a there was an instance when one VC was on stage and said Magnet's data is incorrect. Um, and it's a misrepresentation. And I went and said, why, why did you say that on stage? Mm -hmm. And he goes, well, you don't have our data. I was like, then please caveat it by saying, that's why it's inaccurate. Mm -hmm. Because it's, if you're not giving the information, then that's not my, I can't yeah. get the information. Yeah. So being able to have those conversations is very important. And being the authority and trying to kind of Make it consumable, I go back to that point, mm. is very important mm. um, in creating credibility. Mm. How do you uh, blow off steam? I mean, how do you uh, keep your head on straight and have the clarity? Uh, there's so much pressure uh, on your shoulders. So how, how do you, what are your outlets? Exercise. Um, I now methodically go running. Um, I've become obsessed with podcasts. I love Formula One. I love UFC. I love the all in. Um, I love politics. Mm. Um, I now walk home. I've actively decided, at least while the weather is good, mm. to walk to work and walk home. And there's something so soothing about walking. Like, I've only minutes, I've only grown to appreciate it in the past year. It's like it's therapy. Well, I think that if you look at it also that why do I walk home? Because I listen to a podcast and it mm. gives me 40 minutes to listen to something to mm. disconnect. Mm. Whereas before it was music. There's, I mean, I love music and mm. I enjoy music, but like every, on a daily basis, there's only so many songs and yeah. things that you want to be listening to. Yeah. But I now know that there is a episode every day of the week that's going to be fresh content, mm. whether it's about UFC or F1. And this is subjects that are completely like yeah. uh, different to what it is yeah. that my professional kind of interests are. That's what excites me mm. from a relaxation perspective. Mm. Um, 
I'm a beach person. I love being out on the weekend mm. and kind of just completely different to where it is that you're operating on a professional perspective. Mm. Mm. And I enjoy traveling. So mm. um, being able to get away, which I don't get to do enough. Mm. Um, but I do enjoy stimulating conversation. Mm. I think that's something that I've come with age to, to, to realize more and more. It's not just the superficiality. I do enjoy this, a, mm. a proper conversation, mm. good friends, um, not superficial conversation is far more interesting yeah. um, than just small talk. And I think that that's something that I seek more and more in terms of the people that I hang out with, the interests that I try and cover um, that kind of allow me to blow off some steam. Mm. Do you find that the the crowds you hang with or the people whose company you enjoy has changed from your investment banking days to your startup days? Potentially. I mean, I can't say, I'm not going to sit here and say it's changed a lot. In yeah. fact, many of the people are the same people. Yeah. And, um, but we've all matured as well. And the mm. I think the conversation has changed. Okay. I, mean, I don't want to say that the people have necessarily yeah. changed, but the conversation has definitely changed. Yeah. I mean, everyone's at a very different point in their lives. Mm. The, the, the conversation is no longer just the, the, the social interactions is now much more deep and profound from yeah. that perspective and understanding where people's goals, ambitions, and also being able to give back. So like, I, I really do enjoy supporting friends or people that need help or, or guiding them. My gut reaction when people come to me, and I, I've actually had to say this all the time, when people come and ask for help, which is sometimes overwhelming because you realize that you put a lot into it when you're supporting someone, mm that I tell them, if you're not ready to hear brutal, honest feedback, then it's better we don't have this conversation. Yeah. But if you're coming for validation for me to tell you everything is great and everything's okay, you've come to the wrong person. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, when somebody is looking for help, you can give it to them, they consume it and it's successful. There's nothing more satisfying than being able to support somebody uh, from that perspective. Mm. So I think that's where the conversation has genuinely changed now from the kind of banking years. And I, mm. I would say it's more age than profession. Yeah, fair, fair. I, I've heard you say kind of a couple of things on the in the discussion today. So I heard you say, uh, you know, before you build Kill, uh, I heard you say data really is kind of the underlying source for the decisions uh, you make as a company. Uh, one thing that really stuck with me uh, was this idea that sometimes you just have to appreciate that some things are part of the process. Uh, and then this whole idea of using content to drive your brand. I've learned a lot from today's discussion. We've known each other socially, so it's nice to have a stimulating, uh, intellectually stimulating conversation. So I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Thank you. And I think I mentioned that at the beginning, this doesn't happen enough in our space. Yeah. Founders do not spend enough time speaking to each other, sharing the challenges and the opportunities, and you can all learn from each other. And I think that it's very isolating being a sole founder. It can be isolating being a co-founder. Um, but ultimately, this engagement and learning lesson is extremely fruitful. So thank you very much for having me. And I, I hope it's interesting for anyone that's listening. Thanks.